This program is brought to you by Emory University. Welcome to the first in our Dean's Lecture Series. The next two are going to be on October 12th. Uh, it will be The Art of Preaching in the 21st Century featuring Gary Simpson. Uh, and then on November 9, The Invention of Voluntary Martyrdom in Early Christianity, which will feature Candida Moss from Notre Dame. So welcome back. We're always eager for you to register for your lunch because we're happy to provide your lunch for you. Uh, but we need you to register in order that we don't waste food or finance. And so thanks to all those who registered this time and those who didn't remember to do it next time. Um, today we have a very special way of inaugurating this community time together when faculty, students, and staff are all invited to participate. We will view a PBS documentary film made to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides, the first sustained and successful campaign of the 20th century civil rights movement. One of the members of the Candler community, as you know, was a key leader in the Freedom Rides, as well as a number of other events and campaigns that, of that era. Reverend Dr. Bernard Lafayette is here to watch the documentary with us and then to tell us about his involvement in that movement a little more than 50 years ago. The documentary is two hours long, and we will see about an hour of it. And it will be the last hour. <clears throat> the Freedom Rides began on May 4, 1961, when black and white freedom riders organized by the Congress on Racial Equality left Washington, D.C., and their goal was to defy and ultimately change the Jim Crow laws that mandated the segregation of blacks and whites, uh, especially in the Deep South. As you know, whites rode in the front seats and blacks rode in the back seats of the buses, but the segregation permeated all of life. Um, the Freedom Riders' final destination was a large rally in New Orleans some weeks later. So the rides start on May 4th, 1961. On May 14th, day 11, two buses with black and white freedom riders sitting alongside ordinary passengers, one from the Greyhound bus service, that was the name of the company, the other from the Trailways bus service, left Atlanta, Georgia, bound for Birmingham, Alabama. The Greyhound bus never made it because a mob of Ku Klux Klan members set it on fire just outside of Anniston, Alabama, with the clear intent to kill everyone inside. As the gas tank of the bus exploded, the white men blocking the door from the outside stepped aside to avoid injury to themselves, and the bus riders were able to escape. Eventually, the highway patrol intervened and no one died. Passengers on the second bus that had left Atlanta, bound for Birmingham, those on the Trailways bus, arrived in Birmingham a little bit later with no knowledge of what had happened in Anniston. These riders were greeted by a mob whose leaders had negotiated a deal with the local police to allow the mob 15 minutes of uninterrupted time to beat, burn, and kill 
anyone on the bus. Many were injured and hospitalized in the Birmingham episode. After these two episodes, drivers refused to drive the buses out of Birmingham. Uh, and for their safety, members of the first wave of Freedom Riders were flown out of Birmingham on an aircraft arranged and accompanied by federal officials to New Orleans. To see all of these events vividly portrayed in this documentary, I really encourage you to watch the first half of this documentary. But what I've just told you is what's contained in that first half. When the news about the fate of the first wave of Freedom Riders reached veteran civil rights student activists like Bernard Lafayette in Nashville, they decided to pick up the campaign and carry on with the Freedom Rides. These students were already seasoned civil rights workers, having participated in a number of desegregation campaigns in Nashville. When you see the documentary, it's, it's fair to believe that they were homegrown Southern folk who knew the ways of the South deeply, uh, in contrast to some of the core workers who had ridden down from DC who, might, who, who were anticipating hardship, uh, but it got really hard. These students from Nashville were already seasoned civil rights workers, as I have said, having participated in a number of desegregation campaigns in Nashville. They had survived beatings, jail, and other hardships already. They knew what they were signing up for. So we begin the documentary today on May 17, uh, 1961, day 13 of the Freedom Rides, when the Nashville students join in. When the documentary is finished, I'll ask Dr. Lafayette to respond to your questions and comments. 22-year-old Bernard Lafayette hailed from Tampa, Florida, and was enrolled as an undergraduate at Nashville's American Baptist Theological Seminary. A veteran of Nashville sit-ins, Lafayette had already staged a successful impromptu freedom ride with his close friend and fellow activist John Lewis in 1959 while traveling home for Christmas break when they decided to exercise their rights as interstate passengers by sitting in the front of the bus from Nashville, Tennessee to Birmingham, Alabama. As part of the May 17 Nashville student movement ride, Lafayette endured jail time in Birmingham, riots and firebombings in Montgomery, an arrest in Jackson, Mississippi, and jail time at Parchman State Prison Farm during June 1961. After the end of the Freedom Riders campaign, he worked on voting rights and helped to coordinate the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. He completed a doctorate in education at Harvard University and for several years was the director of the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies at the University of Rhode Island. He currently teaches here at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University and we are deeply honored by his presence in recent years and if you didn't already love and deeply respect him, uh, you will even more so after you see this documentary. So uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Lafayette, and we'll get started with the movie.
a fine jailbird, don't you think? <laughs> well, uh, I've seen this movie many times, but uh, I always learn something more each time. So uh, I don't miss the opportunity uh, to see it. And I want to first of all thank uh, Dean Love inviting uh, this opportunity to share with you and uh, to think about things that happened 50 years ago. I'm glad I still remember 50 years ago. That, uh, the more I say it, the stranger it sounds, 50 years ago. But it's a uh, reality. But I also just simply want to say that I am just really pleased that you're here to uh, join in this occasion. And I also want to uh, say that my wife, uh, Kate Lafayette, is uh, here to join us and uh, share with us my TA, James Alexander, and my uh, special friend, uh, Charles Alfin, who uh, been working with me for the last 30-some years, just got back from Nigeria, where we're training uh, Nigerians to lay down their weapons and to join in an amnesty program. About 20,000 that have just uh, received certificates from uh, our Kenyan nonviolence training program. And uh, so it continues. That's the point I want to make. Even though we're looking at something happened 50 years ago, the, uh, the movement continues, and even here in the U.S. And uh, some of us will be joining others in uh, Washington, D.C., for the monument uh, that will be uh, unveiled officially in D.C. of Martin Luther King. It's going to be now on the 16th of October. And with those announcements, I just want to open up for question and answers and some responses that uh, you might want to have uh, to the film itself. I also want to just simply say that uh, I just received word that it received uh, three Emmy Awards. The movie did, yes. So. It's uh, still moving. Okay. We'll open up for question answers and comments. Yes, ma'am. As I saw the film again, I wondered um, what were your parents' reaction to this? I, I thought, you know, as a parent, seeing a child do this uh, would be harder than being the child doing it. And I wondered how, what kind of support did the Freedom Riders feel from their parents? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, well, it varied, uh, even in talking to uh, different Freedom Riders here recently, you know, uh, about their parents' re response. And some, uh, for example, uh, Linda Gaither uh, was on the film. I don't know if you recognize her. She was on the bus, kind of a young lady. and. Uh, it was uh, gave a very short answer. It's something she had to do. Okay, her family was very much involved. In fact, her brother was a coordinator in Jackson, Mississippi, so it was an expected thing for that family. Okay, in my case, uh, my parents uh, had a very interesting position. I applied for the original Freedom Rides out of Washington D.C. with John Lewis. John Lewis did go on the original ride. And uh, uh, I, because I was only 20 years old then, I 
1961, and I was not going to be 21 until July. But CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, required that those who were under 21 had to have written parental permission. And I sent my papers in to get my parental permission. And my father, I think he finished his seventh grade, my mother at eighth grade. And uh, so I called and I didn't get a, a prompt you know, response. And I said, um, um, did you receive the, the papers that I sent? And they said, oh yes, we got those papers, yeah. I was the first one in, in college, you know, that kind of thing, so. I said, uh, well, I, I need to receive those papers back as soon as possible. Uh, so my father said, do you think we didn't read it? <laughs> so I was hoping you wouldn't. Just sign the papers, sit a bed, you know. <laughs> I read all that stuff, you know. He said, um, we're not going to sign your death warrant. So that's why I didn't get to go on the original ride. The riot was stopped by violence, and Corps agreed to have a cooling off period when they couldn't get any more bus drivers to continue. That's when uh, the students from Nashville took over, and that was an opportunity for me to, you know, participate because I didn't need parental permission at that point because we were, you know, assuming the responsibility. Um, I had to stay uh, in uh, communication with my parents. But I made it as little as possible because I would get, uh, you know, a lot of warning and that sort of thing. So my only response was, uh, the thing that you can do to help me is just pray. Lots of prayers then. I understand from my sisters now that we talk about those things, lots of family prayers. And, uh, but they realized that uh, I was not going to... Uh, stop. You know, so, uh, my mother would tell me, I saw you on television. I said, Mother, I was not even in that place. <laughs> you think I don't, I brought you in this world. You think I don't know you when I see you? <laughs> I said, Mama, you didn't see me. I was in jail. <laughs> but it was that kind of thing, okay? And, uh, we felt sorry for our parents, but you know what? A lot of people say, well, I'm doing this so my children and my grandchildren won't have to experience these kind of insults. Well, guess what? My passion had to do with we needed it now so my parents and grandparents can now, after being uh, uh, a victim of this kind of indignity all their lives, before they would die, okay? Not my grandchildren who are not born, but so my parents, they could get a chance before they die experience being treated with dignity and respect. So that was part of my passion, you know. Yes. Reynolds Bunce. I'm always fascinated by the courage that it takes to be a part of such an endeavor. And there to me, two types of courage. One, the individual courage, and the other, the collective courage. And can you speak to that a little bit? Because we have generations, several generations now, who have not been faced with um, 
the opportunity to find that kind of personal courage for something that really, really matters in the United States? Well, I can uh, speak for that uh, group and myself. One of the things that um, personally gave me the confidence and courage was my faith. I was, uh, like John Lewis, we were, you know, American Baptist Theological Seminary, you know, American Baptist College. And um, we felt that, um, uh, well, I just, on a personal basis, the, uh, the fear I had was that I would um, lose my life before I had a chance to give it for a good cause. Right after I graduated from high school, two of my friends uh, were killed. Automobile accident, you know, class president. <laughs> that was before the summer was over. We just graduated from high school, 18, okay, years old. The other was in, uh, got run over by an uh, older guy, a friend of mine, uh, was in boot camp in a truck, you know, ran over him while he was in boot camp. So I, it, it dawned upon me that life, you know, is not promised. My goodness, it's going to be snatched away so fast. And, and that was my greatest fear. And that's one of the reasons I dropped out of school. I said, I can't wait till I finish school. Here's an opportunity to change something. We saw what, what Martin Luther King had done. We said, well, we got to make sure that this movement, you know, continues. And uh, uh, I said, I must say that John Lewis was one of my great uh, in, in, inspirators, you might say. <laughs> he said, oh, you always talk about this stuff. We got to go and do something. I said, well, all right, come on, let's go. You know, uh, but the other thing is, which uh, is hard to describe, but we were caught up in something that was larger than either of us, you know, as a group. There was some kind of uh, force that uh, really we could not explain. I mean, I was involved in the sit-ins, which was like over a year after that, that I could even articulate what we were doing and why we were doing it. We just did what we had to do. Rather than acting your way, rather than sort of thinking your way into taking action, we act our way into thinking, okay? Because the thinking was already, you know, there. It's just a matter of filling that thinking with some action now. So the courage, yes, we had been trained also by Jim Lawson in 1959 in Nashville. So those of us who continued from Nashville, we not only uh, embraced the philosophy of uh, nonviolence and Mahatma Gandhi, and see, we'd studied in depth. Okay, when I transferred to Fisk, I was a philosophy major, so, and uh, this whole idea, philosophy and religion, was uh, a way of implementing something that we had already, okay, had been exposed to. And now the other, thing in terms of my uh, motive for getting involved. I used to be a gang leader in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, so the whole idea of violence and that sort of thing did not phase me at all, okay? And being hit and not hitting back. My grandmother uh, took care of that when I was young. I'm, and then, you know, can you, can you love someone who uh, beats you up? Yeah. <laughs> 
grandmama, you know, prepared me for that. <laughs> and I didn't hit back, and I, and I did love her, okay? So taking it uh, was not, it was not a difficult thing at all. But one of the things I wanted to do, in terms of my own motivation, I wanted to see if it were possible for me to actually love someone who act hateful towards me. Someone who would spit on me, someone would hit me. I got three ribs cracked in uh, Montgomery when uh, John Lewis was hit over the head in Jim's work. I was standing right there, okay. And the question is, can you actually love someone who acts that way towards you, you know? Because that's what we were. <laughs> studying, you know, in the New Testament, that we should love those who hate, do good even to those who spitefully use you. I mean, you know, is that possible? I mean, you could take a lick, but what about this love business, okay? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I wanted to see if that were possible for me, and I found out you can do it. Yes, I mean, actually love, but you don't just do it, uh, you know, it's because it's the thing to do. It's a goal in mind. And what we did was 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 exude that, that sort of love because you felt that eventually you would be able to win people over. And you know what? It actually works in the family. Yeah. Some folks who act all up in that kind of business and don't want to talk to the people and try loving them. <laughs> you know? And sometimes that's why people behave the way they do, because they feel unloved. Oh yeah, those folks out there on the streets who cut the food and carry on, and do all that violence and stuff. You know how I know? We're training these Nigerians right now, and we've trained 20,000. Charles over there just got back. And we were just doing the training, you know, teaching the philosophy of nonviolence and the techniques and stuff like that. And these boys, after about the third day, it's a five-day program, they started uh, acting differently. And we said, we don't even know what we're doing. What's working here? So we took a soft survey, and we started asking them, you know, what is it that caused you to want to change? And they said three things. They said, first, um, you showed respect for us. There's my other friend, Luther, who's <laughs> teaching nonviolence and that sort of thing. He, has been with us many years, okay, 30 something. Um, and they said, you show respect towards us. You know what respect is? We don't take any foolishness. <laughs> Either you pass the exam or you don't. Either you can stand up and explain nonviolence or you can't do it. You don't just say, pat them on the head and say, you're nice and you've been abused and that's, that's not, no, 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 uh, no. If you are going to change, You've got to demonstrate that at least you understand what nonviolence is all about. That's respect. Okay? Now, if you don't get it, we'll stay up all night long with you. We don't sleep until you get it. Whether you can read or write, and some of them can't read and write, and we stay up all night with them, they can do it. The next thing they said is, we came to respect you. We respect them. And then they felt that they came to respect us. And the third thing, these great big muscle-bound militants been killing the troops and shooting and killing all the folk and that kind of business, et cetera, for the last 20 years. 
You know, the third thing they said, it caused them to want to change. You showed love for us. That's all they wanted. Somebody show some love. So that's why that was important, okay, for us. That is the thing that gives you the courage. That's the thing that gives you the faith and confidence. Question? Yes. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you. Okay. Thank you for taking us, me back to those, to those days. I was a small boy in my own home country hearing news uh, about this movement and never realized how much it's going to affect my own feeling towards um, um, independence and self-respect and those kinds of things. But let me ask the question I really wanted to ask. Um, I've always been concerned. Uh, I've, I was particularly impressed by the interfaith support to the movement because it, it reflected uh, and a commitment to, to an ideal, to, to, to truth, to justice. And since then, I've been rather perturbed by the divide that, has, that, has, that pervades our community. For example, among the black community, I hear so much anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiments, and I can't understand what happened and why. Could you comment on that? Yes, the short answer is this. We were able to be, be involved in a movement that embraced all of those. And Martin Luther King was sort of the symbol of that, okay? Even though he himself was a Baptist preacher, he did not limit himself to being, you know, a Baptist preacher. And he was the one that reached out and um, invited other people to come. You see, in his movements and marches and demonstrations, you, people would all kind of yell you. You can tell they were... Not Baptist preachers, okay. <laughs> Different kind of robes and things. Okay. Uh, right there with us, you know. Right? Rabbi Dresner, you know. Um, so he was broad enough to em embrace and understand uh, the, the, the different uh, faiths and the things that they were in common rather than the differences. Too often we find that conflict occurs when people overemphasize and exaggerate uh, differences. There are differences, but differences are not necessarily pejorative. Uh, differences are not negative. Uh, differences can be enriching, <laughs> okay? So, uh, and, and, and under, you know, informative as well. So I think that the, the mistake that was made in the movement, and I can give you a list of mistakes. I'm old enough now, okay? been around long enough, I can tell you all the mistakes that you possibly can make. All right, that's my value at this point. If you don't want to know about mistakes, don't come around me. I will tell you. One of my mistakes was not to institutionalize that, these concepts, and, and be able to teach them to other people. We, we captured it for the moment, but unfortunately, we didn't institutionalize and maintain it. Uh, same thing, true, right here with... <laughs> You know, was that 30-some states now are changing the, the voter registration laws, okay, and policies and that sort of thing, because voter registration is a state thing, whatever, you know, and that's why we were kept out of it for a long time until we got to 
federal protection for the right to vote. We always had the right to vote, but you didn't have any protection if you tried to vote and, you know, and register to be denied. But we did not institutionalize in each of these counties. See, just because people have a, a change of law, a lot of folks don't have change of heart. They have a change of strategy of how they're going to maintain, okay, their system. Like folks talking about taking back their country. And I, I thought they were, I, had, I wasn't paying attention. I thought it was Native Americans, and I looked. And there were other folks talking about taking back their country. I thought, get back the country. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. So my point is, um, things can go backwards. And just because you made one step forward doesn't necessarily mean you're going to keep marching forward. We have to institutionalize it. We have to continue to educate people. And we have to continue to, uh, you know, uh, reinforce those ideas. Uh, contrast, for example. Supreme Court ruling of 1954. School desegregation. There was a long, drawn-out process for desegregating your schools. And that's one of the reasons why we still have segregated schools. Plus, okay, uh, the ICC ruling was not a long drawn out process. They took those, uh, they took those signs down. They didn't say you have to get now a local petition if you want your bus station desegregated, okay? That, so my point is there's some things that are permanent and instant there are other things that are drawn out, and they also can reverse. So what happened with that uh, conflict between the different religious groups, we didn't institutionalize and, and uh, mobilize people to continue to work together and to collaborate together and to teach our children, you know, uh, to work together. And that's something that's, that's, that we can do. It, it, we take it for granted. In fact, some people say, oh, that's over with now. We already integrated, so we don't have to work on that anymore. And the point is, when you wake up, and you, now, I'd be honest with you, I was surprised, too, like the skinheads and all that kind of thing, and the teapot, I, it, it came as a surprise to me. But then you have to go back and realize, why did that happen? Let me give you one quick example, and we move to another question. <laughs> We have to take an analytical approach to these issues and problems. They're not surfaced. They're deep. Let me give you one example. Why do you think that we experience all that violence in Alabama? They burned the bus. They blew up, uh, you know, well, <laughs> when we were on the Freedom Rides. They met us at the bus station. Now, there was no other bus station. Now, we had a few people who got, you know, knocked around at bus station in North Carolina or something. There was no mob showing up here in Georgia. We came to Atlanta. You know, the, the Freedom Rides came to Atlanta. Yeah, we certainly had an active clan. I mean, they were very colorful. They used to have marches out of Stone Mountain with beautiful robes. They didn't wear those bed sheets. I mean, they were sophisticated clans. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> They had all kind of purple robes and green robes and, I mean, you know, they were really, they used to have an annual uh, kind of thing, you know what I mean? Serious stuff. Stone Mountain. All right? Why is it you had all those mobs, 
of over a thousand people in Alabama, in Montgomery. You saw it. What happened in 1956 in Montgomery? 1956, the local city buses were desegregated, Supreme Court order. The buses were already desegregated, the local buses. That's why they were resisting any kind of integration at the bus station in Montgomery. Because if you desegregate the bus station downtown, that meant that black people would go to uh, restrooms, okay, with white, and they would eat in a the restaurant, they would be in the waiting room, right downtown. That threatened the entire system. They'd already desegregated the local buses. Question is, whether they're gonna stand by as white folks and let them move on, okay, our downtown. So, that's why you had that mass resistance. Now guess what, the church that was surrounded by the mob, that's the church that was bombed <laughs> in 1956, when Martin Luther King's house was bombed. Abernathy's church, we were already sitting in a church that already had been bombed. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, how risky can you, how risky can you get? So when you analyze why you had that ferment and that real antagonism in that thing, you have to look at the history and have some appreciation for what the people were really resisting. Okay. Now the other thing is, on that point, folks in Alabama were embarrassed. You have no desegregation of no city buses in Mississippi, South Carolina. They already, and that was supposed to be the cradle of Confederacy. Montgomery was the cradle of Confederacy. And messed around and let the buses get desegregated. They were embarrassed as white people. So they had to overcompensate to show that they were not responsible for. Okay, same thing happening. So you see, that's why you have to analyze the whole thing. Right. Now, we have time. One, one more. Okay. Dr. Lafayette, I would like to know um, what were the teachers or your professors doing and saying at that time? since you are in school, were they supporting you? You know, were they coming together and you all having discussions at school about what was going on? And what was your peers saying and doing that weren't involved in the Freedom Ride? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, one of the things that gave us in Nashville the kind of confidence to go forward was the fact that we did not feel like we were kind of radical youth. And the reason why is because those who were teaching us and training us in nonviolence were our professors and our teachers. Uh, C.T. Vivian, who you saw on the film there, was my homiletics teacher. <laughs> Can you imagine being in jail with your homiletics teacher? <laughs> 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 
and discussing the epistles. <laughs> epistles are jailhouse letters, right? So here you are talking about the jailhouse letters while you're sitting in jail together. Uh, that was the thing. That they, they made us really feel that we were carrying out our responsibility, okay, and fulfilling the mission, okay, of our ministry. And it was a great, it was a great feeling when your professors were in the paddy wagon with you. And you had a real class. I'm telling you what, people talk about jail experience being all that bad. My foul comment is this. I have to be perfectly honest with you, okay? Um, we had a lot of fun in jail. <laughs> we organized our schedule. We had classes and the different students who had, were different majors, they gave lectures each day. A lot of the students we talked about were smart students who were in jail. They were smart. They were good thinkers and that kind of thing. And so we had, oh, we had, I mean, it was just uh, phenomenal. And we even had some clowns and comedians that entertained us at night, you know? So we had a full schedule. And uh, we had a silent uh, hour right after lunch and that kind of thing. In fact, we had cake. No, no, it was the cake, it was ice cream. In the county jail, our cell had, uh, we had ice cream at night. The jailer, who was Mississippi sheriff, deputy, okay, we used to sing and entertain the, the jailers. And we used to put their name in the song. We established a good loving relationship with them. And this jailer had a daughter who was in the 11th grade, and no one in his family had ever gone to college. Okay? And he used to come to us to get information. What better resource? You got a jail cell full of college students. They know how to get in college. So we used to give them information about filling out forms and sending off for financial aid and all that kind of stuff, et cetera. You take it, you know, the next day back home and that kind of thing, et cetera. We got to know him. And see, at night, you know, the jail activity is different. The jailer sits there and watches black and white TV with rabbit ears, and most of the time it have a coat hanger, you see, and eat ice cream. Send out the trustee. The trustee is an inmate who you can trust to go out and come back. So what they would do is go and get ice cream for us. Who do you think paid for it? They pay, the, the sheriff paid for it because we were his friend. And the reason we make, created friendship with the jailer, rather than shaking your fists and cussing them out and calling them all kind of nasty names, is because you didn't want them to spit in your food. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, you're an inmate, and you're in Mississippi, and you're in jail. So what you need to do is work out a relationship, because he may be a Mississippi deputy sheriff, but he's a human being who has needs. And one of the things in nonviolence is you're supposed to respond to other folks' needs, regardless of how they behave. I got many stories, but I don't have time to tell you all of them. But I know that um, it's, it's, it's possible to uh, bring about those kind of uh, changes with the support, and I think that's what we've got to do as faculty members and others, to be able to see how we can support students in their efforts to take a stand and to help bring about changes and that kind of thing. 
because if uh, we don't do that, we may not get our Social Security. Right. It, it, it's getting serious. And um, I didn't know until I drank some of that tea the other night, okay, that uh, we, we got to move and we got to educate and train our young folk so they can help them, you know, uh, fight for what's, uh, you know, sorry it took so long. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University. Please visit us at emory.edu.